Okay, let's go ahead and get started and pray. Lord, open now your word to us. Um, Help us, Lord. We are always in such great need. We give you thanks that though we forget you, you do not forget us, and that your provision is always greater than our need. Um, Speak now and bring to us what we uh, what we need, whether we know it or not. In Jesus' name, Amen. It is good to see everybody. Um, uh, was expecting a small crowd, I'm happily so. In fact, with Joe's uh, class upstairs and also, hey, uh, either leave it open for a minute and we'll see what happens. And we can close it if kids come and gets gets noisy. So today, um, on Ephesians 2, if you want to turn, we're going to read the whole chapter and then kind of spend most of our time in the, the first part of it, one of the the great places of, uh, of the scripture. It's where we get the, the language, um, it is by grace that you have been saved, it is by grace through faith, um, uh, which is a work of God so that no man may boast. The great but God in Ephesians 2.4 comes out of this. Uh, uh, it's repeated elsewhere, but this is usually where it's found, and it's sometimes called um, so two of the, the most important words in all of the scripture, um, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't stand in the way of that description. It's a very important place. We're going to try to lean into that and see what it's all about. Towards the end, I'm going to say a little bit about a new book um, that's just out called Being Dad, uh, 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 but on the front end, the way all this began, not just because Christmas is coming, but... Uh, Christmas is coming. Um, uh, thinking about the normal way of things with presents and gifts, and that's why it's kind of a clunky title. didn't really come out the way I'd hoped it would, but something like, did I, what was I just given? Was I just given a gift, or was I just given a duty? Was I just given an obligation? Because unfortunately, I wonder how it plays out for something like you, for someone like you. Um, I'm trying to read put too much into the way it works in our house. But say it's December 23rd, and it's late afternoon, it's a pretty day, everybody's in a ho-ho-ho mood and all that sort of thing. And one of you very kindly comes by our house, please don't do this, and uh, and drops off a present, you know, some, some pecans or some fudge that y'all made or whatever else. And it's, uh, you know, like 4 o'clock in the afternoon, and, and you know, mother-in-law's coming over later that night, it's going to stay for the week. And, you know, it's just before everything's about to sort of hit them and you're tired and all, and somebody comes and gives you a gift, a Christmas gift. Isn't that nice, you know? And so we go through the, the language of, oh, I'm so glad you brought, thank you so much. We were going to get you, I've got it for you, I just don't have it yet. I'm going to, I'll bring it to you tomorrow, is that okay? And you have to then now, secretly, in the back of your head, go through this, oh, I ran out of the things that I have just in case somebody comes to sort of hand it to them, the perfunctory sort of, oh, I didn't get a chance to put a name card on it or whatever. And so you go through that whole mental gymnastics of now I have to blank. And so now it's not a gift. Of course, it was probably happily given. Maybe maybe it's always some of that sort of debt economy that's going on. I don't know. But it's it's not felt as a gift. It's felt as an obligation. It's felt as a duty. Now I have to, you know, go to Publix and get some more sugar and some more whatever else to make some more fudge or some more brownies to do what I do for everybody so I can get it to their house tomorrow before I then have to make the turkey, et cetera, and so forth. And we end up having all the joy taken out. And so there's the gift, obligation, question. What was I just given? Was I given a gift? Or was I given a duty? Was I given an obligation? 
That's, of course, in places where we live, I think. That's, that's, that's part and parcel. I'm not trying to sort of, I'm not trying to say, let's don't do that. I'm not trying to sort of collapse that whole sort of social structure. I do want to sort of raise it. I hope we always put it in there and, and realize the tension anytime we're driven to a have to. Now I have to do this. Now I've got to do that. This is just the way things are. I don't know why. They just are. You know, it's good to sort of look at that every so often and say, really? Why? And especially when we open up on the vertical and say, is it always that way? Is there another way that it happens? Certainly on the vertical plane. Was I given a gift? Because that's the language in Ephesians 2. It is a gift from God so that no one can boast, so that no one can stand sort of in their own juice and say, I did this, I made this. Um, uh, and, and so the gift really remains a gift without any opportunity, without an expectation or even an opportunity to repay it. That's a gift. Um, does it exist in this world? That's a good question. And that's where we're going to go to that book, Being Dad, Fathers is a Picture of God's Grace. Maybe, just maybe, sometimes, when you don't know what you're doing, when you're a parent, you might give gifts to your children and not have an expectation of something in return. Improved behavior, a credit mark, you know, something that they're going to remember in their future, something else like that. So that's kind of what I want to sort of put on the table and then lean into Ephesians 2 and then come out and look at maybe a little bit of parenthood, fatherhood. Um, it's good to see Adam. Uh, and see where we can go today. Does that make sense? Kind of tie into, was I given a gift or was I given a duty? Was I given an obligation? Not trying to pop that, certainly not trying to say, so let's all, you know, the 20 of us, 15 of us, whatever, uh, pledge that this Christmas we're not going to fall. I'm not doing that. You know, that's, that's what happens. That's what we do. And that's, that's okay. Um, let's recognize that it puts a lot of stress on us. And the haftas can sometimes kill you. And maybe it's nice to have a, a group where you can really sort of say, you know, this is a real gift. Don't do anything. Just stew in how uncomfortable it is to receive a gift with no ability, much less expectation, to do anything about it. It's actually massively displacing and disconcerting. So maybe we'll talk about that too. Thoughts, questions? Just trying to sort of tie us in here uh, as we get started. Shall we read Ephesians 2 then? Um, so you can turn in there if you want. Um, somebody need a Bible? I might come in late. Um, got on your phones and all that. Ephesians 2. You know, just to uh, sort of fill a little bit of, uh, of the air as we're thinking about it. Uh, I can hold that there. Paul did something. He was, he, was really, he was really on when he wrote Ephesians. But you can say that whether, anywhere. You know. He was really on when he wrote Galatians. He was really on when he wrote Colossians. But he was really on when he wrote Ephesians. Ephesians 1 famously uh, starts after, after the first introduction, Paul, an apostle by Christ Jesus, grace and peace. Uh, then in Ephesians 3 through, I think it's 15, it's just by memory, that's one sentence. It's the longest sentence in all of the scripture. It is just run-on sentence. It's like he says, I've been given something huge to say. This is a vision from God. And he just writes it down, just like spills. And then the rest of Ephesians 1, which we now know is Ephesians 1, because, of course, they didn't break that down. Then he writes another sentence, and it's the 
second longest sentence in the Bible. Um, so Ephesians 1a is the first is the longest sentence in the Bible. The second longest is Ephesians 1b. And then I don't know this. I don't think Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 is the third longest sentence in the Bible. But all of these verses, 1 through 10, is also one sentence. So Paul takes one and a half chapters and puts everything in there in only three sentences. He can't get it out enough. And in fact, the verb, uh, but God made us alive. All that's one, one verb that appears in verse 4 is the first time a verb appears. In the Greek, you know, we put verbs in there uh, in our English in order to, to, to make it make any sense in the English language. But Paul just keeps talking about these descriptions. You know, what does he say? He would say something like, dead in your trespasses and sins, um, following the course of this world, following the prince. So you have following and all that, but they're all in sort of the passive descriptive voice. He doesn't have an active verb for uh, until verse 4. So all that's to sort of couch. He wants to say something, and he's sort of spilling to get it out. He's a, uh, so here's Ephesians 2. Let's read the whole thing. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which, you once, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together. That's all one, that's the first verb. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should all walk in them. That's all one sentence. Continuing, Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus... You once who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of the commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us to both God and in one in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near, for through whom we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together 
into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we're not going to approach all of this. It's way too big because he was on when he wrote this. And he's, he's got his mind up in the, the seventh heaven, um, up in the 45,000 foot stratosphere. I mean, he's putting it all in there. He can't get it out quickly enough. And so he just puts comma, comma, semicolon, dash, parentheses. I mean, he's got all of these parenthetical places where he's trying to get out what he wants to say. But just going back, what were we given? A gift or an obligation? Um, God saves us from something to something. Absolutely. God saves us from ourselves. God saves us from our sins. God saves us from the world, the flesh, the devil, the law, sin, and death. And he saves us to something. He saves us to his own glory. Um, uh, He saves us to works. He does. but God is the worker. He's going to make that plan plain so that no man may boast in verse 12 uh, or in verse 10. Uh, he saves us to works through his own workmanship. It's the word that we get the word poem from where he says for his own workmanship, his own craftsmanship, in order that we might be a display board to display to himself and to all of his created order his glory. Isn't that weird? God just delights so much in his work as it were that he makes us uh, and gives us the gift of faith, uh, salvation by grace through faith, so that he might display himself to all of the world and back to himself. That's what Paul's trying to pack in here in very small language. And with the sparsity of verbs, a verb doesn't show up until verse 4, made alive together, uh, he emphasizes again and again and again, and then again and again and again, that we don't bring anything to the table except our own disobedience, our own, our own, uh, our own sin, which is worthy of wrath. You know, so sons of anarchy, um, uh, the sons of disobedience. I, I don't watch that show. I've seen it one or two times, and that's a big show. Anybody watch that? I'm told that I don't know if this is true. I don't know if this is true. The creators, I don't know if they mean to do this, but I've seen some more than one op-ed. Um, describing that show with a, in a very artful way, where it is describing a very godless world, might very much have in mind Ephesians 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. What does it look like to be sons of disobedience, um, worthy of wrath? It might look like that show, Sons of Anarchy, where it's coming in that same place. So within all this, and again, really collapse the idea, what was I given? A gift? So I have to stew in the juice of the gift and be displaced by it, to realize that, that if I really am dead in my trespasses and sins, and God didn't die in order to make a bad person, me, good, that he really doesn't care about behavior, per se, but he, he, he died so that a dead person might live, uh, and live to what? Live to his glory. Live because he wants me and you to be a display board, uh, uh, to save us from something to something else for his own work and purposes, for his own poem, for his own craftsmanship, for his own workmanship. What's it like then? How does that displace us? How does that really collide with our very human sense of when I'm given a gift, great, now I have this duty. Now I have this obligation to do something, even if it's a small something. Here's just a little something. It's just some pecans or whatever else to somehow give that back. And what if we can't do that for God? Not only are we not expected to, but we can't. That's what I want to sort of draw some tension into the text.
So going back through it, any comments so far? So verses one, one, uh, one and two. We'll kind of stop. We'll, we'll go there and, and then jump a little bit. And you were dead in the trespasses of sins in which you once walked. The Bible loves this metaphor, um, and it's not really a metaphor. It's trying to say this is the literal description um, of a, of each of us, uh, the part of us which is apparent, obviously, the uh, the life that we live um, here in the flesh is alive. My heart is beating. Um, so is yours. We're in this world together. Uh, but he's saying, Mark, there's much that happens that's actually hidden to us, whether it's the hiddenness of God. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Or our real condition of being dead and our trespasses and sins. The Bible wants to make sure that we get that very clearly. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And then he goes on to continue and really to hit it again and again and again and again and again. Following in the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air. It's a very evocative, um, and in English with the alliteration, way of describing um, the, uh, the work of the devil, of Satan. Following in the course of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, not just the bad people over there, because he's going to talk about the dividing wall of us versus them and say that's been obliterated both ways. There is no separation between who's good and bad. There's also no separation now between who is good and good. It's just what God says is. Uh, among all, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. And so whether it's by sins that we commit or think, what we do, what we don't do, what we think, what we don't think, you know, he leaves it you know, just another place, which he does so often, just to make sure that we don't, mistakenly think that, well, at least I'm not like her. <laughs> well, at least I'm not that. He's saying, yes, you are, and it's much worse than that. Um, uh, but God, being rich in mercy, now he just starts to luxuriate in what he knows of God. He starts to call a thing what it is in Luther's language. He starts to describe God's very being, that God does who he is, and God is who he does. And God, rich in mercy, with this abundance, this wealth of mercy, which just overflows like a fountain coming out. But God being rich in mercy. And now again, comma, comma, parenthesis, semicolon. He can't get enough. Everything is a clause just to describe the clause before. Uh, luxuriating in this super abundance of the description of the goodness the wealth, the generosity, the grace of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, um, reckoning back to, to Romans 5, when we were enemies of God, uh, while we were yet sinning, God died for us demonstrating his love, this love with which he has loved us, the declarative. He has loved you. You can't do anything about it. This is a gift, and you can't, you can't not accept it. Because what power does a dead man have? What power does a dead woman have? Can they say, no, I don't want the gift of resuscitation? It happens. The doctor puts the paddles on your chest, shocks you, puts you back into a sinus rhythm, 
and you're back. You didn't sign the waiver and give an informed consent to say, I accept this treatment. God just does it. It's a very ungentlemanly thing to do. But he comes in there and he says, uh, uh, when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He has to get that phrase in there. Again, there's no sort of transition. It's all just one long run-on sentence with the first verb. Uh, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Um, you can't be deader than dead. You can't be more dead than another. We are dead in our trespasses, and he does this thing to us. He gives us this gift and makes us alive together. This this morning when I was looking at it, I like to look at words every so often because I don't speak Greek, but I can know where to look on the Internet and, and find them all out. So there's these three parts because you can just kind of pile roots and stems and prefixes and suffixes on the words and all that. And so we all know what the word Zoe means because we love the uh, the chicken salad there. Life, you know, and so that's in the root here. The word sin being made together, S-Y-N, like synonym. And then also the word for poem. Again, workmanship, which is going to show up. And that's what caught my eye. Um, as in verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's also the root of the verb made us alive together made us a lot together sin made us alive is in life zoe like a new life something that wasn't and then brought about written authored uh, master worked where all this as if it were we were the wood and he is the carver we are the clay and he is the potter um, we are the canvas and he is the painter and it just happens Lazarus Come forth, little girl, arise. Be opened, and it happens. And he's going to emphasize that. And again, this super overflowing abundance. Made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Um, by grace. What is grace? We should never tire of asking that question. What is grace? Grace is not mercy, which is already we know he's rich in abundance of mercy. Mercy is not giving uh, what is, is withholding what is justly there. Um, Charles deserves a demerit, and I don't give it. And so that's mercy. Grace is Charles deserves a demerit, and I give him the raise. I give him a promotion. I set him up and say, you get the car. But I did wrong. But you get the car. It's offensive. It doesn't make any sense. There's no economy that makes sense. Of grace, And it is by grace, we who are children of wrath, we who are sons of disobedience, who walk bound to the sins not only of our bodies but of our minds, and we're given the keys to the kingdom. For it is by grace that you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him. And now all the together, the with him, really comes into... Uh, to Mark, raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the measurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And then finally, he says it, um, not as a, well, it's all still one sentence, but as a clear clause. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. He makes the point of, uh, of uh, in this very real time uh, that God enters in 
and says, now. Now is the time when it happens. Right now, at 10.35 a.m., right now is when this happens. This place of an interruption, of being... Um, being given this always and forever, in C.S. Lewis's phrase, the eternal now, of at this very moment. Whether that's now, or in 20 minutes when you're driving home, at that very moment, or in one year, at that very moment, or at the moment of our death, at that very moment, being brought in with Christ to luxuriate in all of this superabundance of the grace and the mercy of God. The Bible is very clear. So I want to hit pause and then go over to this little book and talk about parenthood, maybe fatherhood, in a particular way. And then we'll either end early or have a couple of minutes to, um, to talk. So any comments on Ephesians 2, whether it's those or something else? Yeah, Charles? Well, I know you said you were unhappy with the title, but it was, it was descriptive enough for, for me to have a pretty good idea of what you were talking about. And, and one of the reasons I want to come to this class is that this whole business of getting uh, yourself all called up about, you know, reciprocating somebody gives you a gift. That's thankfully not something I really struggle with. <laughs> um, I've, I've, for a long time, I've been able to just look at somebody and say, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. And, and, and I do consider that a blessing yeah. in many ways. You know, there's this spiritual component that you're talking about in teachings here about what, about what is behind everything that God's doing that points to this. But then on a on a, on a social level, and just in between people in real life, I think there's a, there's another social component to this. That if you if you uh, if you get too exercised about the fact that somebody's giving you a present and uh, you run out of the extra spare presents to give people when they show up and all that, if you make too big of a deal about that mm-hmm. in front of them and oh. It, then you're kind of, you're robbing them, sure. you're denigrating the gift that they've given you by, by lowering it to the standard of a, of a, of a transaction. Right, right, and, right. And, 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 and putting it back on them that, oh, well, now, you know, of course I have to give you something back because you really couldn't possibly have just been giving me this gift out of kind of support. You must accept it, must expect something back. Yeah, it gets complicated fast, yeah, doesn't it? It so, really yeah. is, but, you know, you, if, you, if you run it, if you run that far away, uh, I mean, you're, you're not being nice. No, no. It gets complicated yeah. because there are some, I bet, uh, maybe thinking what I'm thinking, but there are some people that wait until December 23rd to put you in the difficult position of having to be in a debt relationship with me now. And they sort of take a perverse pleasure. In, and so it's like, whoa, you don't care, of course. I know. So. And saying thank you to them is what St. Paul would call eating hot coals. It would be. So it would burn them out. Deserve it, then so much the so, Yeah, read them. I don't, I don't really put the burden on the person giving you the gift. Because sometimes it is the fact that they just really want to give Right, right, right. It's that pesky little cognitive dissonance, I think, where you just cannot stand to be in depth. Right, right, right. Whether perceived or actual, right? But you just keep wanting to bring it back down so that we're on equal plane. Yep, yep, yep. They did something for me and all I'm in the position of being just grateful. His receiver. Right. Yeah. Because if I'm dead, what power do I have to reciprocate, to break it even? Yeah. A lot of tension. I don't think we're going to erase this tension until 
the Lord comes back or until we die, in which case we, and then we just receive from him with no expectation whatsoever. I mean, that is heaven. No need at all. It's just receipt. No giving, no offering. It's just receipt. It will be really active. We're going to be working just our tails off, but it's all going to be uh, pure joy. Um, I kind of went on a tail. Just what you're saying. Uh, Well, it's not what you were saying, but from what you were saying, I completely agree and take that. Absolutely. There's no, we're not going to abolish that tension here, I don't think. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's there. It's real. Um, it's hard. Maybe I'm alone. I mean, it's a displacing feeling when you really are in a place. Like, well, when you're in a place to receive a gift and you know you can do nothing about it. You don't know who to write the thank you note to because it was anonymous that it's such an enormous gift, not necessarily monetarily, that you know that you know, a thank you is, 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 is a drop in the bucket, it can't be given back, that there's nothing you can say or do which would ever be able to express any part of the grace, the gratitude. Those two words, of course, are the same, uh, of what it's like to receive this. It's meant to displace us into a whole different paradigm. It's a separate economy, is how it sometimes is called. Uh, this vertical, which now becomes the horizontal place. Maybe it's a good segue. So here's this book that I just read this week. It was given, uh, or it was started from a, uh, uh, the genesis of the book was a, a, a series of talks that Rod Rosenblatt, Lutheran theologian that came here to the Advent, gave in 2003. And so now, 12 years later, a book appears. I just love it because there's the Advent concentric circles going out these 12 years later where Rod Rosenblatt came. I'm trying to look around if anybody was here. Charles, I know you were here. Um, Jeff was here. We came down on a Saturday morning, um, and he just said, all I'm going to try to do, this is Paul Zoll was here, and Paul and Rod served on some, some councils together, and says, Paul wants me to come and just tell stories of my father. And he's, I can't even try to imitate him with his gravelly voice because he still smokes like a stack, and he's a great, great man. Um, uh, and, and he said, I just had this great dad, and he just wants me to tell you stories. And so that's what he did. And some of them are offensive. My favorite one, which I tell probably three or four times a year, so if you come to my classes, you've heard it. Rod was um, 17 years old. Uh, his dad was a surgeon, obviously a well-to-do surgeon, because a lot of his stories have to do with just an abundance of, of, of monetary gifts. He was just able to luxuriate um, gifts to Rod. And so Rod is out um, with three of his friends, and he says, and we were drunk, you know, it's just the way Rod talks. And, uh, uh, and it's this long car, and he talks about this great Buick, straight eight, with this long hood, and so he had to kind of pull out just to see what was coming down the road, and he pulled out too far. Another car smashes into him, and the uh, uh, car's totaled. It's a brand-new car, but it's totaled. So he's shaking, calls his dad. He says, Dad, I've been in a wreck. Um, you okay? Dad's a doctor. You okay? Yeah, I think so. I'm just, I can't stop shaking. Oh, that's shock. You're fine. You're going to be okay. Where are you? We're all down at the service station. We're all okay, but we're all just kind of scared. Dad, I'm so, don't worry about it. I'll be there in five minutes. His dad leaves his medical practice. That's a big deal. Everything's just leave. Like the father in, in Luke 15, he left and he ran out. See, I cry when I hear the story. I mean, I just find it so evocative. So he left and he came to Rod and his three friends 
and they're drunk, but now shaken up. So it's that weird sort of 17-year-old who you know, probably had 10 beers each, but now they're really scared, and so they're kind of sober, but kind of drunk, and just all that. Um, uh, and he takes the three friends home. Of course, Rod thinks he's just going to get it, and he deserves it, and he knows it. And he tells the story in a great way. He was wrong, and he knew it. There was no like, but I was trying to, but all this. There was just no but. He was just undressed before uh, the facts of the matter, of what he did. And so he sits down. Uh, he says, we went right through the house. You know, Mom's like, just give us a few minutes. Goes up to the room, sits on the bed. He's like, you okay? He's like, I think so, Dad. He's like, how about tomorrow I take off lunch? We'll get you another car. That's the wrong, that's the wrong answer, right? I mean, there's no, there's no economy there that makes sense. That's not good parenting. Um, that's not teaching natural and logical consequences. There's no, that's, that's the wrong answer, right? Of course, Rod tells the story, and here I am repeating it, and do three or four times a year, because that's Ephesians 2. That's grace. And importantly, Rod knew he was wrong. The law, we would say, had done its work. He had no excuse. He knew he was dead in his trespasses and sins. A son of disobedience, taking advantage of his father's generosity, running out you know, with his friends, doing things he wasn't supposed to do, so the lust of the flesh, and he wrecked the car. And Daddy bought him a new one. And that's grace. And it changed Rod's life and became a theologian. And now he's going out and he came here and he told stories like this and he kept telling them. And, uh, and, and our recording was then recast and put on another platform called when good, when good Fathers Die, It's Always Too Soon because his father died when he was like 48 years old. When the father was 48, when Rod was you know, probably in his mid-20s or something like that. And so there's just a few snippets the best part of the book is towards the end it's called stories of and from fathers and rod rosenblatt has a couple of a uh, couple of these these are meant to be very oblique because they're not they're not meant to be oh i'm going to go do that with my children um it's not prescriptive in that sense of do this and this and this and this is good fathering this is good parenting remember what it is it's an example of grace in the ephesians 2 context what have i been given a gift or a duty a gift or an obligation. If we're trying to say, okay, on the vertical plane, since we're dead, then of course there's nothing I can do either to accept the gift because it's just thrust upon me in a very ungentlemanly manner, and it's so overwhelming because of the surpasses rich, surpassing richness of the wealth of the mercy and the grace of God, that what could I even possibly do even if he did expect it, and he makes sure to know that this is a gift from God so that no man may boast, and you were created to do good works only because God wants to say, look what I did, and, and Gil's the display board, and Ron's the display board, and John's the display board, and Rudy's, and all of them are just, look what I did, and it's all about God, and it's not about me at all. That's all these stories are about. Maybe, just maybe, when it shows up in the human sphere, at times it might perhaps, on a day when you're not aware of what you're doing, see how seldom it is? It might be like a father's love or a mother's love for a child. So, here's one. Uh, once in a while, my dad's in-house lab tech, a Japanese gentleman, because um, his dad was a physician, did what my dad, I think, suggested and introduced me to how to do simple lab analyses, because he would go and work for his dad in the summers in the office. 
to do simple lab analyses, CBCs, urinalysis, etc., as part of my quote-unquote work hours. During one of these sessions, Carl, the lab tech, looked at me and said, do you know why I work for your dad, Rod? I answered, no. Carl said, because he pays me twice what other lab techs are paid, on the one condition that I never talk about it. I'd work for your dad anytime and anywhere. Another one. During my senior year of high school, a few friends and I would regularly plan to study together at my house in the evening. It would always last just a little while, and we'd end up playing poker instead. My dad would fix iced Coca-Colas and buttered popcorn, bring them down to us. We were studying, quote-unquote, in the basement, and notice that we were playing poker. He would sit down for a few hands, lose $50, and then go upstairs. <laughs> I think that's great. Um, another one. My dad and... Uh, Skip this one around a little bit. Um, so they had uh, a f an old farm in California with just lots of land and, and a lot of guns. So in the closet of the first floor bedroom, he stocked with ammunition of every imaginable caliber, 22, 38 special, 45 Colt, shotgun shells, 12 gauge and 410, a hand trap and boxes of clay pigeons, rifle from a 30-30 Winchester level action to a Springfield Army equivalent to an alcohol of 30-8. So that's all for you, Charles. This says eight. So um, that was so that I could bring my schoolboy buddies up for the weekend and let them try shooting any rifle, handgun, or shotgun they wanted to. Dad would put them through the basic gun safety course and then turn them over to me and watch them carefully, enhance that training if necessary, minute by minute. Their mothers were unsure their sons were going to die. Their mothers were sure their sons were going to die that weekend, but the boys thought they'd actually already died and gone to heaven. And the next time we came out to that farm, all the ammunition was seemingly magically restocked. It was like an ammunition cornucopia. The supply of ammunition never ran out. And then one more. And again, this isn't good parenting. This isn't good parenting. It's not supposed to be. College money. I was home from college, the University of Washington, one weekend. During that time, my dad remarked, how are you doing for money? I replied, I'm doing okay. Dad said, no, you're not. It's not good to be poor or close to it while in college. I'll put some more money in your account this week. That's just the dad, I guess, that Rod Rosenblatt had, or at least it's the dad that he remembers. And I read it, and I was like, I mean, every flag in me goes off. Part of it guilt for what I'm not doing with my own children. Part of it, uh, because, of, because of, say, my professional content, is like, ooh, that's, that's, that's going to really, you know, that's enablement, and you're going to create this kind of disorder and all that sort of stuff, and entitlement, et cetera. And the other part of me just sits there, and, and I'll, I, could, I could work myself into a weep if I want to, and just say, man, that's rich. There is an abundance of grace upon grace upon grace that just flows out in the language of Paul. Rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, with which he loved me, even as I was dead in my trespasses, caught dead to rights, you know, I wrecked the car, uh, was made alive together with Christ, for by grace I've been saved and raised up again and seated with him in the heavenly places, shown the immeasurable riches of grace and kindness towards me, for it is by grace that I have been saved. And it's not my doing, it's all gift not as a result of anything that I've done, a work I can never boast. I'm another's workmanship, another's poem, created in Christ Jesus towards something for good works, 
which God has prepared beforehand so that we would walk. Let us pray. Gracious Father, um, take these feeble words and do something with them if you'd like. Uh, Grace upon grace, Lord. Um, Let us be displaced by the gift, not a duty, no obligation, by the gift of what you so lavishly give. In Jesus' name, amen. Scott Keith, it's upstairs. Again, I do, I mean, you heard my my recommendation. It's good. Um, sectarian, that was one part of it. I didn't say that. It's, it's written by a Lutheran pastor. It's got a, Luther, a lot of Lutheran church kind of words in it. Um, get past that. And there's some great stories. It's really good. So, good Christmas present. You should give it and somebody will give you something back. <laughs> oh, a book. I got one for you. So. So, Thanks. Thank you.